0: everybody thank you for listening to performance anxiety on the pantheon podcast network i'm your host mark and i want to thank our sponsor akg for sending us their podcaster essentials kit it has a lira mic and a set of headphones that are amazing if you've ever thought about starting your own podcast this is the best way to do it richard x Heyman and nate wilcox join me to discuss the songwriting of ray davies or is it davis i don't know Is he underappreciated or not? Is he appreciated just enough? Richard and Nate discuss how they discovered and obsessed over the kinks. They share some wild stories and some favorite songs. Ray has been a big influence on Richard's writing. And Richard has a new album out and we discuss where Ray's presence might be felt. Nate talks about how he started his wonderful podcast, Let It Roll, and where he sees it going in future episodes and series check out richard x Heyman's new album copious notes wherever you get music these days listen to nate's podcast let it roll on the pantheon podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts follow us at performance Annex on all the socials we take coffee at ko-fi.com merch is found at performanceanx.threadless.com okay enough of all this let's get going on the songwriting of ray davies with Richard X. Heyman and Nate Wilcox on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. am joined today by Richard Heyman, Richard X. Heyman and Nate. Awesome pants. <laughs> <laughs> and Nate Wilcox from, from the uh, Let It Roll pod. How's everybody doing this evening?
1: Beautiful. Very good.
0: I'm doing well. All right. Glad well, to I, be here. I appreciate you guys joining me. I like to do episodes like this every once in a while because I like to I like to try to learn things and I'm not the most familiar with Ray Davies' catalog. I know a lot of the hits, but I don't know the deep stuff. I don't know things. And the hits are actually amazing when you go back and listen to them. And I didn't realize how many there were going back and looking at the you know, just a Greatest Hits album is, you know, two albums long and they're both, you know, I'm looking at the Greatest Hits, it's 44 songs which is amazing. Some bands haven't written that many songs. He wrote 44 hits. But I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to find out what you guys think about Ray Davies' catalog and I think, I'm thinking he might be one of the most underappreciated songwriters of the 60s, 70s and 80s. So... How did you guys come to find out about Ray Davies? R- Richard, let, let's start off with you. When did you first discover Ray and, and the Kinks?
1: Well, it started pretty much in the beginning here in America Would you really got me. <laughs> ¶¶ It was like unlike anything we had heard. That kind of overdriven guitar sound, the energy, the angst—it was just a new sound, and it was pretty exciting.
0: I heard that that was, for all intents and purposes, the first song with an overdriven guitar, with and it was. Was it on purpose? It was an accident. I can't remember the story. Do you remember the the whole story behind how they got that sound on the guitar?
1: Yeah, well, I I believe the story goes that Dave Davies was uh, fooling around with his amp and started sticking needles into the speaker trying to make it sound tougher i guess they were listening to some blues artists that had kind of a, a little bit of a grungy sound on their guitars from chuck yeah. berry even and so they were trying to emulate that and dave and i guess with ray's approval made his little amp just sound like a fuzz box and be way before fuzz boxes were even known and, and right. that was the origin nate how did you
0: come to find out about
1: the well, Davies
0: and and the Kinks.
2: Um and, and I, I had to be a no it all, but I've been burned on this before. They actually say it Davis rather than Davies. So really? um yes. And so if you have a Brit guest on your show, they'll burn you with that one if oh. if you call him Davies. But um I still call him Davies just so people will know who I'm talking about. Um I didn't know that. I, I'm you know, i I'm, I'm sticking with Davies. Yeah, it, it lets people know who <laughs> you're talking it's, it's, about. And, and there's no Brits here, but right. <laughs> but, uh, but they're pretty insistent on that's how they say it. Um, I originally came to the Kinks through my older brother's late '70s Arista albums, Misfits and Sleepwalker. And the uh, rewrite of You Really Got Me, that was one of their later hits in 1982, uh, Self-Destruction or Paranoia, I can't remember the name of it, but those were my first exposure to the kinks. But where I really got into them was through just fate. The record shops in Amarillo, when I was a teenager, Amarillo, Texas, had scads of spanish import versions of the british albums so we got our hands on kink controversy we got our hands on face to face village green preservation society something else Um, all those kind of kinks all those classic albums that were absolutely out of print in the 80s and me and all my friends um, just leapt on those things and devoured them. I can remember reading the lyrics to village green preservation society on the car ride home. And it was like an hour home uh, to my even smaller Hick town to get to a record player and, and just reading the lyrics to village green preservation society. I knew that I had something special in my hand and just absolutely fell in love with that album. And of course, you know, I knew you really got me and, um, inescapable song, an inescapable classic, but I had no way to hear those middle works uh, other than those out-of-print albums we got our hands on.
0: That's really interesting. I, I didn't realize that those albums had been out, were out-of-print at that time. I, I My introduction to The Kings had mainly started through a couple of hits and, and covers, like Van Halen doing a couple of Kings songs. So reading liner notes and discovering, oh, they didn't write those songs who did and i would go back <laughs> and i would listen to it and i i didn't really get into the kinks because by the time i was really introduced to them i was more into zeppelin and floyd and and the longer psychedelics more intricate complex stuff and i didn't realize a lot of that probably started with their single uh, see my friends which i didn't hear until much much later possibly my favorite kink song ever. It's a pivotal one. Absolutely
2: important. It it really introduces those, even though they didn't use a sitar on those, on that record, they uh, tuned their guitars deliberately based on sounds they heard while they were flying through India. They stopped in India for like a day on their way to Australia on their first international tour. And there's a story in either Ray or Dave's autobiography of, you know, Ray's sitting on his balcony listening to incredible indian music and dave is on the beach running from his life from a pack of rabid dogs which is just a classic <laughs> <laughs> kink story
0: <laughs> oh that's awesome man so what is it about ray davie's music and, and songwriting that you like richard is, is is there something about it because i hear a lot of of very straightforward songwriting you know there there isn't anything obtuse or complex about it it's it's very um it's very straightforward blue collar themes perfect pop structure it's just it seems like it's a great package for radio is is there something in in it that you particularly are drawn to
1: well he's just a natural i mean some people just have this ability to come up with great melodies over interesting chord changes and he has such a vast repertoire that it's it's hard to even talk about a style because there's English music hall, there's what became almost a prototype for punk rock and you know heavy metal or hard rock. Yeah, there's you know songs that could be on a Broadway show with the, the, just the beauty of the melodies. And so he's just one of those gifted songwriters. He's like Richard Rodgers or I mean, he's just got the knack to come up with the goods. And, you know, I always think of this quote about, um, this is a little off topic, but just to give you an idea of what I think about Ray is, I'm a drummer and and I'm a big fan of Buddy Rich. And Louis Belson once said, of Buddy Rich, somebody out there, I mean, you'll never, you know, somebody may be as good as Buddy Rich out there, but nobody's better. And that's how I feel about Ray. You know, wow. It's like, maybe somebody's written some songs as good as Ray, but nobody's going to be better than Ray. He's the best at, at that type of songwriting, in my opinion.
0: The Kinks went through, a, like you said, a lot of different sounds. And I'm, I'm looking at a couple pages here. They have they have it kind of broken down into Kinks' early years, they have, which are up to up to 65. They have what they call the mid-period, from 65 to 75. And then... The later sound, 76 to 84. Is, is there a, an era there that really speaks to you more than others? And, and uh, Richard, we'll go, we'll go back to you to start with. Is, is there an era of the, the kinks and, and Ray Davies songwriting? Well, that really-
1: rock and roll, and I guess any art, especially music, is so age-related. And because I was of the age to be just totally blown away by the British invasion when it happened. Huh. The Kinks played a big part in my upbringing and my musical influence. So, you know, it's just a very important era for me. And I, I just sort of rode the whole tidal wave of, of the Kinks albums as each one came out and know them you know, inside out. Yeah. I mean, it's just part of my life. And the bands that I played in, especially the main band that I played in back in that day, did all the Kinks covers you could imagine? I mean, all the hits and some obscure album cuts. Oh, cool,
0: Nate. What about you? Is is there a period of the Kinks that you're really drawn to? I mean, I'm fond of all of them. the The first period, of course, has the wild.
2: You know, you really got me, and and uh, that all day and all the night, just the yeah. the, the feral stuff. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Early British R&B stuff, which was an acquired taste. It took a lot of listening to the, like their first album. I remember getting my hands on their first album, and you know, it's got you really got me on it. And then the rest of it is just sort of stock British R&B. But I came to really love that stuff and and their their sound. But then Kink's controversy, my God, that that is to me just the perfect album because they're still feral. Dave hasn't been tamed yet, and and so it's got you know their version of Milk Cow Blues is just so insane. I think it's just absolutely 1965 state-of-the-art rock and roll. But it's also got the first beginnings of Ray's more mature songwriting. And then, you know, by the time you get to Village Green, which is just to me the absolutely perfect album, I've I remember when I first bought it, I would listen to it for hours and hours every day to the point the whole family is just telling me, please, anything, you know, (laughs) turn that off. But I could hear the whole album in my head at once when I went to bed at night. I could hear every song playing at the same time. So, you know, that's absolutely, you know, probably one of my favorite albums of all time. But that later stuff, the 70s arena rock stuff they did, um, you know, has... Many great songs on it, so yeah, I can't I can't pick a favorite era, and and I didn't get to see them live. I missed the show um, when they came through. I think it was Las Cruces, New Mexico, it was the closest I ever had a shot to see him when I was outside Carlsbad, but but couldn't get it together despite begging my big brother uh, for weeks to give me a ride there. Um, so yeah, it's it's hard to pick a favorite era, but a lot of a lot of strengths in that discography.
0: Since I'm mostly familiar with the hits and I haven't really dived super deep into their catalog, I want to know a couple things from each of you guys. And you kind of brought this up and made me think of this. What album would somebody, a novice like myself, what one would each of you recommend that I listen to? And what's maybe a, a deep cut that's not a hit? that you like specifically? One, one that you would say, oh, this is one of my favorites. It's not a hit, but this is a great song.
2: Well, I mean, I would start with The Greatest Hits, just the one CD with The Greatest Hits with You Really Got Me and, and um, you know, the hits. But the second one I would get is Kink's Chronicles, which is an album that their first record label put out after they left for RCA. And it it's a really weird Greatest Hits package because I think Ray assembled it himself. And it's got... Oh numerous hit singles it's got victoria and and many others but it has b-sides it has tracks that were never released anywhere else and it really Gets that Britishness of the Kinks across, and there's you know songs like Wellesley Green and uh, Berkeley Muse, and these songs about these British locations and tea time and you know Sunday roast, and and for me as a Texan, it, it was so evocative of a, of a place that seemed so exotic and glamorous to me, and it's just you can hear where Paul Weller and the Jam got their entire act uh, <laughs> from, and and Blur too, you know that that. You know, evoking a Britishness was yeah. a go-to move for guitar bands for the next two decades, and it all comes from the Kinks. Well,
0: in listening to some of the, the stuff, I've decided that half of the gorillas vocal styling is based on sunny afternoon. The
2: sunny afternoon and I can't sail my yacht he's taken everything I got all I've got's this
0: sunny afternoon Ah, yeah I could see that right, Richard what about you what's what's, uh, an album that you would recommend I dive into and maybe a lesser-known track that, that you really love?
1: Well, it's tough because let's go into that, I guess what I would call the mid-period, which really, for me, starts with King's Controversy. Uh, but it's, like, amazing because there's this litany of albums, face-to-face, something else, Village Green, and each one is as good as the, the next or the last one. It, it's uncanny. I can't think of any other group. That has four albums in a row and then you could you know you could throw in uh, Arthur and, and Lola versus the Power Man too and they're all equally significant and great I mean I remember when King's Controversy came out I bought that album for a friend of mine who's kind of a casual fan it wasn't a most of my friends were musicians he was a non-musician and I bought him that album and he thanked me profusely after he delved into it and got to about that third listening and was hooked. And okay. he said, "God, I can't thank you enough for giving me this album. It's so great." And so, maybe let's go with Kent's controversy, though. Face to face, something else. God, they're so great. <laughs> I am. I'm, anyways, I'm pulling
0: uh, them up right now, yeah. looking at the track listings and, all, and and so much of it is, is recognizable. It's amazing. Is there a deep cut that, that you particularly like that you uh, wish maybe got a little more attention?
1: Oh God, there's so many. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, one of my favorites is Animal Farm from Village Green. Okay. So, I, I'm going with songs that just bring me to tears. Yeah. one thing I love about rock and roll is when you can't hold your emotions in because it's either so melancholy or joyful and next thing you know you're tearing up from the music and it's just yeah. that's what art is all about so Animal Farm for sure okay uh, but there's, there's I could go on and on I mean <laughs> Maybe we, we should do
0: a uh, kink's I mean, days.. I mean, yeah. we should put together well. an album of just kink's deep cuts that should have been hits.
1: Oh yeah. I mean he's got I mean, I think he is the most prolific writer in rock and roll that kept a certain standard from beginning to end. He's always right up there in, in just the proficiency, just beautiful writing. And, you know, some writers kind of would start to fade toward the end of their careers. Others, you know, lost their singing voice. But Ray just kind of maintained a very high standard, especially just even if you're just looking at the 60s work, you know, from the first album to whatever it is, Arthur. I I think Lola came out in 70, around 70, 71. But I, I, I kind of include that in the 60s group because it's just kind of an extension of of what he was doing i think on arthur
0: okay nate what about you is there a i don't think i don't think i ha- asked you to pull out a, a deep cut yet did i
2: yeah i mean i would so many come to mind i have you seen this did you see his name off king chronicles is one that um i just especially love but yeah. That he must pay, so they put him on probation. They forgave his name. but there's a whole album of deep cuts called the great lost kinks album where village green was supposed to be a double album a ray davis solo album and it was cut down to a single because they were absolutely at their commercial bottom at that point they could not buy a hit in the states or in the uk and oh, wow. so it was cut down to just one album and when they came back after lola and victoria um Pi put out an album that only stayed in print for a little while but you can get it easily now called the great lost kinks album. And it is just full of really strange songs that don't quite fit with the kinks that you could see as Ray Davis. solo really? album, solo songs like there's one when I turn off the living room light that is about an old dude and his ugly wife imagining <laughs> that she's beautiful. And it's just such, such a beautiful song. Um, so I would, I would have to go with a whole album with the great lost kinks album would be my secret
0: track. I will accept that. <laughs> <laughs> so with this with all this being said I kind of went into this whole thing thinking you know maybe maybe Ray is under underappreciated undervalued and I'm kind of wondering about that because you know when you look at all the songs you see songs that you've I've known my whole life didn't maybe not always realize they were kink songs but do you think he's kind of underappreciated? Am I mean, or am I maybe just unfamiliar with it, with the discography, and uh, in thinking that maybe he's a little underappreciated?
1: I think people in the know obviously appreciate him. Right, uh, musicians who really care about songcraft and and you know just that level of, of you know really strong songwriting. Uh, You're right. I I mean, the story was, you know, because they got banned from America in the mid 60s and didn't get to tour like all the other British bands. They lost some traction. That's part of the the mythology of why they're not in the same uh, stratosphere as when people talk about these kind of arena acts like Led Zeppelin and... uh, McCartney, you know these yeah. and the stones, you know, they can all still to this day sell out arenas where the kinks it's not gonna happen. they're down a few notches. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know why, but it's just the way it is. I mean, they weren't um a show group like like the who or or Led Zeppelin. you know, they had a great live band, but they weren't an exciting, you know exhilarating show shopping visual band, like when, you know, the first time I saw The Who, it was just such a visual onslaught yeah. along with the sound. The Pink so, Floyd, bands like that, yeah. The Kinks, you know, just were a good, solid rock band, and they had this genius songwriter and a great lead guitar player and co-writer sometimes with, with Dave. And, yeah. Um, what
0: about you, Nate? Do you, do you think that it's, thought, he's, he's underrated, maybe,
1: in I the mean, general public?
0: i I think the
2: thing is that the kinks are so great and and their competition is you know the beatles the who the Stones. so and led zeppelin like you mentioned like the very biggest bands of their era the greatest bands of their era and even though they're probably my personal favorite out of the i mean i don't know i've had years of being obsessed with the stones and the beatles too so (laughs) but but the kinks have a very special place in my heart but if you really study their career, you can see why they didn't get as big. Like Andrew Lou Golden, the first manager of The Stones, um, once said at a banquet uh, 5, 10 years ago, you know, that a great band has a great manager. And the Kings did not have a great manager, and he called out their management team by name, and they oh, wow. they had terrible management. The the kind of management that, you know, Ray Davies by 1965 is already in court suing his management team to get his publishing rights back and and all this kind of stuff. So they they did not have a Brian Epstein or or, an Andrew Lou Goldham, who could really put him up at the top and and shepherd him. And, and, you know, like Richard said, they, they were not as visually compelling as The Stones or The Who. And they also, their arrangements, if you listen to their albums, their albums, I think, stack up with anybody from the era. But if you listen to their singles as part of like a singles compilation from that era, they would repeat the same arrangements. So like, you know, You Really Got Me is followed by All Day and All of the Night. And then, you know, there's I Want You, which is a third version, which was a B side, you know, but they, they do the same thing uh with the piano descent on sunny afternoon and, and they use basically the same intro intro for Waterloo Sunset. So you can see even though the songs were absolutely as great as anything anybody else was putting up they're you know the beatles had this unfair advantage lennon would come in with a great song and mccartney and harrison would dive in with these arrangement ideas and vice versa when mccartney came in with a great song with ray he was kind of on his own even though dave was a powerful force and contributed dave was also 17 when they got famous and wow can i use curse words here absolutely yes okay so you know uh, when i first read about the kinks after a couple years of getting into their mid-period stuff and they were so you know this gentle bucolic sound and everything then you read about them and they're these absolute animals you know the 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 quote about dave davis is that you know he'd fuck anything that moved man or woman (laughs) and if he couldn't fuck it he'd fight it you know and (laughs) and
0: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors
2: So, you know, and, and Ray talks in his memoirs about how alone he felt because his brother just turns into this frothing-at-the-mouth pillhead lunatic. Wow. And, you know, Mick Avery is this goon who nearly decapitated Dave on stage once with his cymbals. Really? Um, yeah, and Pete Quaif and, and you know, Pete Quaif is a, a fine bass player, but he's no, you know, Paul McCartney or Brian Jones is going to come in with some great, you know, arrangement idea. So... Uh, you know, he's kind of held back in that and, 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 and the pressure of having to have hits and once I think it's who will be the next in line wasn't a hit. And so he, he was under this real pressure to, to get hits, and so he had to kind of repeat himself just because of the pressure of the, the pop marketplace. And remember, they had to come up with a hit single every six weeks. Oh, so wow. So it was just, you know, and going up against the Beatles, the Stones, the Yardbirds, Manford Man, I mean, you know, plus Motown, plus stacks I mean, it was, it was a brutal competition and a very short-term memory environment, so you know that's kind of where they struggled and and then they just never they never got the martial amps and eventually did have kind of an arena a, a long period of arena success in in the states in the 70s but it took them a long time to figure out how to play arenas after lola is a hit well, I left home. often drunk on stage and and they had to replace multiple members of the band and you know Pete Quaife quit and John Dalton comes in and so you know they had to kind of learn how to put on a big arena show and 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 it it took them a while but they eventually you know by the end of the 70s they were a gold album selling out you know five six thousand seat arenas across the state so they they got to a pretty high level but yeah, and then, do you know the story of why they were banned by the American Federation of Musicians?
0: I, I know that I've heard it, but I don't remember it. So yeah, feel, feel free to uh, film it. According
2: me in. to Ray, there at the end of this tour, which is this just total shambolic odyssey across America... And he hears some loud-mouthed American talking about, you know, these limey queers, and we we bailed their ass out in the big in the big one, blah blah blah, you know. And, and yeah. he turns around and there's this old guy with a crew cut, and Ray just flattens the guy with the right cross, just boom, you know, and lays him out. And that's the kind of thing that'll get you banned. Turns out the guy was a vice president of the American Federation of Musicians Union. So. Oh you know oh, that's uh, do it. <laughs> yeah Jeez. so stuff like that so yeah stuff like that like you know or the song dedicated follower fashion ray wrote it because he got in a knockout drag out brawl at a party in london with the fashion maven like you know breaking a bottle over the guy's head oh, and oh stuff and then thought well you know what'd be smarter than rolling around in the gutter is writing a song about it so <laughs> seek him here they seek him there his clothes are loud but never square it will make or break him so he's got to buy the best because he's a dedicated
1: follower of fashion and when he does
0: well that's why some of his songs sound so true because it's actual events that happened i guess Yeah. So, (laughs) Richard, has Ray Davies influenced your songwriting a a lot? Because going through your catalog and listening to the new album, I hear a lot of maybe like birds, jangly, that 60s era... (laughs) a little more complex than like a lot of the straightforward kinks music but then again i am not a hundred percent familiar with their entire catalog so is there a ray davies influence in your songwriting oh for sure
1: yeah i mean but it's an amalgam of all those people we've been talking about i mean i grew up in the 60s and how could you not you know be influenced by the new Beatle album or the new, you know, Bob Dylan album for that. I mean, there's just so much great music going on. And and like Nate said, Motown is happening in stacks. So, yeah, I I definitely was hit hard by all of that. But, you know, I try not to think about it when I'm writing a song. it, It doesn't even really cross my mind. I think you're just trying to express yourself and then whatever comes out, then you look back at it and say, oh, I see this and this would kind of influence me. But you tried not you know, to dwell on trying to emulate anyone. That's a big mistake, I think. I can see
0: that, yeah, because you, you don't want to copy anything. You don't mind being influenced by something, but you don't want to. Yeah,
1: copy. I mean, when I first started putting out my own music, I was sitting with um, some writers, I think it was from Rolling Stone magazine, and, and they were saying, there's something about your music that's yeah, a different, it, it seems like it wants to be kind of British, but it's not. And I said, you know, it's because, you know, I'm American, and I, <laughs> I love a lot of American music, and I'm a big fan of soul music and, and R&B, and I love the band. I mean, they're from Canada, but it's got that kind of rootsy thing. So right. all those styles are swirling around in, in you know, songwriters' heads that... You know, all you have to do, like Brian Wilson said, you just got to listen. Yeah, uh, that's why he was so influenced by uh, Phil Spector. He said, "You got to just listen to it, and you learn from it."
0: That's right. Now, this new album that you, you came out, how did you come up with the name "Copious Notes"?
1: Oh, that's just another one of my puns. It's basically taking the familiar phrase "copious notes," which we all think about when you're sitting in. A lecture hall in college or something or yeah. taking Coleman's notes. But then it hit me notes, no ah, musical notes. So <laughs> just a lot of notes. And then I looked up the word what it actually meant, and other than just, you know, kind of plural uh, and meaning many, it also means thoughtful and has some other nice connotations. So ah, that would be a nice title. It fits in with the rest of your catalogue I and you, you you always had such clever titles. I love puns, you know, I like puns that kind of make you <laughs> groan, but that's what makes a good pun when somebody groans.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of makes me smile, like, like a lot of your oh. music. So <laughs> oh, thank you. Was this album recorded in your home studio?
1: Yeah, I, I have kind of a modus operandi. I, say. I start at a regular studio, a big... 24, whatever they are these days. I don't even know how many tracks it was. But yeah. And I set up the, a drum set in the middle of a big studio and just put down drum tracks. And then I take all those home to the computer and start layering. Okay. You know, each thing one at a time with my wife. Did the whole pandemic
0: and lockdown, did that have an effect on the album at all and, and how you recorded it or wrote any of the music for it?
1: It must have because it was all done starting... In the summer of 2020, so we were in the thick of it. Yeah. And all, all that kind of out exterior you know, situations definitely creep into the creative process. You can't help it. Right. But, but again, you know, I don't want to think about like, oh, we're, you know, we're isolated, we're in quarantine. I just was trying to write songs the best I could. And then when it's when you're done and you look back at it and you say, hey, you know, this is kind of like a melancholy song. And I think... <laughs> Being in that that predicament definitely, you know, snuck in there. It's in the lyrics. It's like the opening line of the album is, uh, the dark is getting to you unless you're not alone. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's pretty much the way everybody's feeling these days.
0: Yeah, but with a lot of your work, it's actually a little, it's more positive than anything because you're saying, you know, you're not alone. We're all going through
1: this thing. Right, right, right. I'll take that as a compliment because that's, that's really what you try to do. I mean, it's what I always call the happy, sad aspect of pop music. Yeah. Like, you know, you take many Ray Davies songs that are just beautiful and you can tear up and at the same time, they're joyful because they're so, so wonderful. Yeah.
0: And Nate, if you have any questions or, or any any comments, feel just jump on in. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about cutting me I, off. I just you. want to compliment Richard on
2: the new album. I mean, I, I thought it was one of your best since Hey Man, um, and I, I I haven't kept. Up, uh, uh, you'd had a couple albums that dropped that I hadn't caught up with, so I'm looking forward to catching up on the last two or three. But man, it was good. And I noticed that first line, and I did immediately think of the pandemic. But the music's so beautiful and happy, you know. It, it really, it, it didn't have a downer feel to it at all. It really, it really made me feel good. And it also, I, w- I just wanted to ask you one question: Have you been to, listen to a lot of st- uh, stiff stuff like Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe? Because for some reason, I'm getting that vibe off of the of the
1: album. Well, yeah, you couldn't avoid it. I mean, when it came out <laughs> <laughs> i always tell the story how I was living down in Maryland at the time in the mid seventies I was playing drums for Link Ray of all people. you know he talking about distorted guitarist because he's really the uh the inventor of the uh power chord back with rumble in nineteen fifty eight yeah. Which anyway, that's a whole other story. But I was, <laughs> I was I was playing drums for him, and I was just starting to kind of come out of drummer mode and, and try my hand at you know the singer songwriter thing, and and uh, just writing songs. And I was trying to do what I thought was kind of a, an interesting thing, which was kind of Beatlesque on one hand, a little influence of Dylan with the lyrics and the band, and putting that all together. And I was in a music store. And all of a sudden, I hear, and it sounded like me. I was damn, what is that? That's not me. That's somebody doing what I was trying to do much better than what I was even <laughs> caught in. It was Elvis Costello. like, damn. And so I was like Homer Simpson, like, don't oh. <laughs> <laughs> He really just nailed it. He had kind of the melodicism of the Beatles with the sophisticated lyrics and kind of that subtle kind of ambiguity, he couldn't really tell what he was talking about, but it just sounded important. <laughs> and he had that voice, which he, you know, had this angst. So yeah, yeah, and I I listened to a lot of that stuff at the time, very jealous. But it was really good because I went back to the drawing board after that and said, okay, I gotta really, you know, buckle down and write better lyrics than I've been writing. Can't be lazy in the lyric department. And so, yeah, I, I listen to that. But, you know, going back to Ray, too, I mean, he set a certain standard along with Dolan. You know, he's very British and he talked about class aspirations in, in England, which, you know, we all can't totally relate to. But, right. you know, he knows what he's talking about. And it just sounds like very knowledgeable about what the lower classes were aspiring to, and, you know. Want it to be this or that, or satisfied with what they had. So, yeah, all that definitely was an influence. What I liked about
0: the Ray Davies music that I know is the like the very clear, concise songwriting. You know, it's it's yeah. it's very upfront about what he's trying to say, and I, that's what I liked about stuff like uh, the song Cedar Brook Park. You know, it, it's a very it's a great story. It's just it's very clear.
1: Marching band would practice down by Randolph Road. I've run out to watch them, hear the drums explode. May reds would lead them, such a swelling sound. They would...
0: It's very um, accessible. It's not, uh, it's not like some of like maybe Dylan's more obtuse works or, or something.
2: Uh, or Elvis Costello's, yeah. where you, you don't know what he's talking about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a problem with Richard's song. No.
1: Yeah, uh, that, you know, you know, that song, Cedar Brook Park, was one of the few totally autobiographical songs that I've written. And it was influenced in a way by the Beatles. Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields single. Where okay. I was in a, kind of an exercise in okay, I got to write about my hometown and what actually happened to me or places that I know. And so, yeah, I you know I took this piano waltz that was just an instrumental, and I turned it into a song. And then I had been writing a lot of instrumental piano pieces. That's basically what most of the songs. Uh, on this album started as oh okay they were just these piano pieces that i recorded as quick demos and i listened to them picked the ones that had a certain listenability and sometimes i would combine a couple of them you know maybe change the key to one to fit as a b part to another instrumental and those became the bulk of this album and then and then you know i took the piano arrangement out for the most part on a lot of them, we it with guitar or something. The piano back into the mix more.
0: Do you have a, a set schedule or, or set process for how you write? I mean, are you sitting down and making yourself write something every day, or is is there something um, else?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you're going to get the same answer from any songwriter, pretty much. You know, just whatever happens, happens. You know, get. <laughs> Inspired to play a lot, you know, a lot of the times, you know, the truth of the matter is a lot of it is just noodling on an instrument, you know, and, and something starts to sound good to you. You're, you're starting with things that are familiar, chords you know, and then maybe you'll move your pinky over, yeah. <laughs> either one note on the guitar or on the piano. The next thing you know, it's like, what is that? That's something I haven't done before. And so you you start to just noodle away and you get a little progression going. And then, you know, a melody can pop over top of that. And so, yeah, it's a lot of it's happenstance. Some of it's trial and error and some of it's just inspiration that you got.
0: Nate, tell me a little bit about your podcast, because you and I are on the same network, the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm, I really enjoy it. But tell me, tell my listeners a little bit about what your podcast is about and, and why they need to listen to it.
2: Well, it's um, a the the tagline has been for a while how pop music happens, because I you know, was in some failed bands and, and I, I had the opportunity to do 24 interviews with Ed Ward, the author of The History of Rock and Roll, who just sadly passed away recently. Yeah. And so I got to really learn from the master how to analyze trends and, and how to look at music by following the audience and looking at the technology instead of a big picture cultural thing. But, but I've. Recently sort of changed my tagline to the most ambitious musical podcast you're ever going to hear because I've got the 24 part history of rock and roll with Edward. Um, I'm about to drop an eight part history of country music with a guy named James Porter. That's based off the Ken Burns documentary. Uh, I've I've got a 16 part hip hop history that's based off Netflix hip hop evolution that I do with uh, Eugene S Robinson of the band Oxbow and Alexi old, who's a veteran entertainment lawyer. And then, um, uh, a 24-part history of techno music, which was not my base, like I, I knew nothing about dance music until I read the book um, Last Night of DJ Saved My Life about 20 years ago by Brewster and Broughton and realized, oh my God, DJs, this is, you know, disco only comes alive when a DJ plays it on records. It's not about, you know, the MFSB album or uh, the Barry White album and what they did in the studio, which why? how I had been trying to get disco. And obviously I couldn't go back in time and go to a tech right. in the 70s and have that full experience. But once I realized, you know, I'm dumb, so somebody had to explain it to me. No, it's about the DJ with the two turntables making the drum break go longer and watching the dance floor and watching what, the, you know, and then I went, ah! So just wrapped up the first 24 episodes of that. Wow. And, and with an interview with Brewster and Broughton. So, and my goal is to do opera, blues, gospel ragtime uh, to a, a similar ambitious level so you know at the at the end i'm hoping to have you know a, a dozen episode series on virtually every major musical genre so that's <laughs> wow. that's what the literal podcast is
0: that that's impressive and ambitious yeah i mean it's the, the kind of thing that keep you alive <laughs>
2: for <all the> time,
0: <laughs> or kill you one or the other <laughs> yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) i think i need to spend more time with you and and learn uh, about uh how to read trends i think that uh, i think that's something i need to work on
2: i mean it's you know fascinating stuff i turned off pop music in like 91 i stopped following new stuff because i was in a band and we had our own vision and also i'd just been burned buying so many albums that everybody was hyping up and you know like I love Soundgarden but their first two or three albums suck frankly and, and you know, I remember going to the store all hyped up about this band from Seattle and you know getting ultra mega okay home and it just sucked and so I just stopped but then <laughs> like 10 years later I was able to like I heard about Outkast I heard an Outkast song and I was like that's pretty cool because I had I'd stopped listening to hip-hop around the time that Bismarcky got sued and you couldn't sample anymore oh yeah and so oh here's outcast and they've got five albums and they're all great <laughs> you know and like discovering that or stereo lab like you know here's this weird french band that's that's into psychedelic music like and they've got nine albums you know boom it's so much more efficient than trying to keep up but since i started doing the show i've been kind of trying to catch up with the last 25, 30 years of pop music. And it's been really interesting. And at the same time, learning about ragtime or, you know, minstrel music. And, 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 you know, so I'm just kind of skimming over the surface. I've got no illusion that I'm ever going to know this stuff the way I know, say, Beggar's Banquet, but we're living at this moment when you can hear virtually anything. So, you know, I'm just trying to dig as much stuff as I can and trying to understand it as well as I can.
0: That's amazing. I am blown away by that. That is incredible. (laughs)
2: my wife doesn't think
0: (laughs) (laughs) i can only imagine because i know what my wife thinks about me recording all the time and and when i'm not recording i'm editing so i I know kind of what you're going through indeed and then i'm sure what i could say richard but you know his wife plays bass for him so she's jumping in there well richard's musically gifted which is something i'm not
2: so yeah, me, me too. People, people like to hear richard play and sing yeah and I, I can barely
0: even get my kids to you know let me play records. <laughs> i'm just I'm trying to get listeners for this podcast <laughs> so richard where can people find him how can they pick it up and, and follow you on social media and, and find out are you going to be uh, supporting the new stuff with uh tours or playing live with the Doughboys or anything in the near future?
1: Uh, I'm a bit of a Luddite with all this Uh kind of new technology. I would say the best place to start as far as finding my music is my website, just richardxayman.com. It's all there, all the albums, all the videos. So that's a one shop for all right there. The Doughboys, unfortunately, uh, have going their separate ways oh and man more live shows for that band which i'll miss because i have two beautiful vintage drum sets just packed away in my closet here and oh, wow. I'm hoping i'll have some reason to break them out again so as far as live shows for my solo thing I haven't really planned on that yet okay I think, you know things have been in such disarray because of the pandemic yeah. uh well, see, you know, we'll see, but we, you know, maybe we'll do a virtual show at least from the bed, the bedroom. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah. Nate, how can people find the podcast and follow each of your episodes and your unbelievable series that you're dropping?
2: It's uh, it com, the website, and it's on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, amazon podcasts um i haven't been keeping up on soundcloud but all the other places you get your podcast hopefully uh pantheon is getting it out there and and so yeah the let it roll podcast just google it and you should be able to
0: turn up the latest episode excellent well is there anything else you guys want to drop on ray davies or richard your your stuff before we we uh sign off and and call this one a wrap
1: oh gosh there's so much to talk about but uh... I'm just so impressed with Nate's uh, open-mindedness to all these different genres. I, I'm really, just really impressed by that because we we've been trying to expand our our musical input here, and we've been where, before the pandemic we were regulars at uh, Lincoln Center because we live here in New York, yeah. and we were really getting into Beethoven, you know, because. I heard about the guy. I <laughs> heard yeah. he was supposed to be good and he rolled good. over and all that. But, you know, when we heard Beethoven's first symphony, we were just so blown away. <laughs> it was, right, we got to hear all the symphonies live. So we made a point of that every time the New York Philharmonic was doing a Beethoven symphony. We were there and, you know, all the other greats like Mozart and Bravo. We got into that. And, you know, I've been a, I started out as a jazz drummer. You know, I'm still very heavily influenced by that. And so, oh yeah. yeah. So yeah, when Nate, when Nate was talking about you know doing a show about opera, I mean, I think that's great because people need to to expand their musical uh, horizons. Exactly. I I remember listening
0: to opera with my grandfather, and that's kind of what what I think of when I think of opera is my, my grandfather listened to it and and I listened, I I listened to some of it out of nostalgia for, for that time period. But I'm kind of inspired now to open up to other genres. I've been lucky enough doing this podcast. I've been exposed to a lot of genres and bands that I wouldn't have otherwise by people reaching out and wanting to just talk about their music. And uh, in fact, I would highly recommend anybody listening to this to go back and listen to Richard's uh, episode that we did about a year or so ago. And uh, Richard, you go into your, your incredible musical career and who you've worked with. You know, like you said, Link Ray, Brian Wilson, um, all kinds of people um, you know obviously the doughboys so it, it's you've, you've got an incredible rich musical history yourself and i would really uh encourage everybody to listen to that episode and listen to your catalog go pick up richard's albums because they're, they're very uplifting they're very positive it's in, in in a world where things go negative so quickly <laughs> it's awesome to hear somebody whose music is positive oh thank you so i
1: appreciate that thanks
0: Absolutely well, guys. Thank you so much. I, don't, I know it's getting late. I don't want to keep everybody up all night. We, like you said, we could talk about Ray Davies. We could, we could spend all night doing it. But uh,
2: can I tell one last Ray Davis story? Absolutely, absolutely. And and this is one I read a long time ago in a fanzine, but. It may or may not be true, but they were touring America in '65, first tour. They played a show in Illinois, I think Chicago, and the promoter took him back to their house. And Dave was by, and very feminine with the long hair and everything. And 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 '65, I mean, that meant you know that that was very charged sexually yeah and this promoter's really into dave but he's given dave the creeps but ray would always kind of egg dave on in these things and he almost (laughs) ditched dave and left him there at the promoter's house um because and dave was massively fucked up of course yeah and it turns out the promoter's name was john wayne gacy so Whoa. <laughs> there you go <laughs> but anyway, oh, God. this, this suddenly Dave became a true crime
0: podcast
2: yeah a <laughs> <laughs> narrow miss for Dave Davis right there
0: wow. <laughs> holy crow I'd never heard that
2: again I can't vouch for that I read it in a fanzine like 20 years ago but that's a story and, and it's a good story
0: it's a good one it's a good one to end on uh, guys yeah, talk to- yeah. Guys, <laughs> thank you so much. Richard, you've got an open invitation to come back whenever you like. Nate, I need to have you back on. and uh, Happy to do it. Awesome. This was fun. I, I, had, I had a really great time.
1: I have to wonder why you would want me now.
3: Just how?